Hi there and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have Rafael Arar with us. He's a designer and artist who works with complex systems. I'm really excited to have you on. Please tell the people what you do. Yeah, um, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, call myself this mostly designer, artist, researcher um, who for the past handful of years uh, has been really exploring complex systems, um, primarily in R&D spaces, research and development spaces. Um, so that's been looking at things like artificial intelligence and emerging technologies, um, how those emerging technologies apply to aspects of society, uh, economics, uh, education, um, and that think really sums up my activities and my interests. Um, pretty broad and far-reaching. What led up to such a diverse skill set? Not every creative soul can operate with complex systems like AI, for instance, and the other way around, not many of those you know, coders can do creative work. Um, I find that only a few tend to excel in both. Uh, but what led up to that? Did you study this? Where did the interest come from? Yeah, I think um, what I found is that folks who are interested in systems in particular have a hard time choosing one specific discipline. Um, I think as a result, you find these these people who are, you know, often who start in multidisciplinary ways, uh, exploring different domains. Um, and at a young age, I was, um, I'd say, pretty interested in, in kind of finding intersections, you know, taking one thing and another thing and two things that are unlike one another and, and trying to see, you know, what happens if you combine the two, you know, almost like a conceptual or an intellectual mashup, right? And so that led me to explore a variety of uh, different things and I'd say higher level education, um, so my undergraduate, I was exploring economics, I was exploring more of the humanities and music and often, um, you know, as I learned more tools uh, that led me into the digital space. Um, and so then it was just trying to explore and, and pick up new skills. Uh, I think I'm always someone who's interested in, in acquiring new skills and thinking through how those apply and really trying to make sense of the world and using a variety of different lenses. Um, and I think that that interest plus, you know, a strong background, um, you know, a family influence of, of being involved in the arts uh, led me to, to really thinking about artists as, you know, honestly, some of the some of the most um, creative uh, lenses on on complex problems, right? Um, so in addition to some of the scientists who are exploring complexity and, and some of the wicked problems that we face as society, um, the artist lens I often saw is actually a valuable way of, of shifting mindsets, changing hearts, uh, changing minds, and then kind of trying to alter the conversation that way. Um, so that's a little bit about how that kind of trajectory and that meandering set of interests evolved and emerged. So now we kind of, you kind of explained how you got into it with your studies, but 
can you maybe explain how it's changed throughout your career? Because when I looked you up, one of the things that kept popping up is you did a lot within education. I saw you were working at Khan Academy, you were adjunct professor, all these things. Um, how did the skills that you learn apply to education or why did you dive so deep into education? Yeah, um, really great question. So, so my dad was an educator. Uh, my dad was a math teacher. And I think my parents um, really instilled uh, a deep appreciation for for learning, right? I think they they both immigrated to the the states, um, not very well off by any means, and they kind of ingrained in, in my sister and me this the way the way that you actually you know. Um, get through life is, uh, and, and some of the, the best parts of life are actually just acquiring knowledge. Uh, and so that's always been an interest of mine. And then as I got older, it's, it's kind of been a way of also trying to instill that interest in others. And so I think this, this started in graduate school. Um, so I went to the California Institute of the Arts for graduate school to really explore a hybridized uh, education uh, in both art making as well as design. In fact, a lot of my thesis work were, were how the two are, are different and yet how they engage in, in feedback loops together. And so that manifested through both craft, but also through concept. Um, and it was through getting um, an MFA um, that I was able to start teaching at the university level um, and found that I was you know, quite interested in that, um, especially engaging in kind of critical theory and, and exploring that avenue. Um, and so that's something that I've kept up um, since graduate school is, is just trying to keep a foot in academia. Um, I think I enjoy really doing a lot of work that drives industry forward or, or changes narratives and, and kind of culture and the way that we, we do things in our current economic system, uh, but simultaneously trying to really inspire and um, provoke interesting conversations with with some of the, the new folks who are emerging or will be emerging in the field or whether that's in industry or academia or as artists um, so that kind of exploration and then you know what led me to Khan Academy was I was pretty in, in, steeped in I would say big tech companies where I was working with and for companies like IBM and Apple and Google um, and then um, I ended up meeting the, the um, head of design at Khan Academy and um, she was telling me that Khan Academy had this R&D team uh, that was looking at early product development. And so that's, that's what really got my wheels turning in terms of how do you think about emerging spaces, right? What does early product development mean for uh, this concept of democratizing education? Um, and pushing pushing that conversation forward. So, so actually thinking about how you scale education as opposed to my one class a, a semester at the university setting. So, so what was your conclusion? How do you democratize knowledge? How do you scale education? What are some conclusions you took from your time there? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a great question. I think one of, the, one of the challenging parts of working at Khan Academy um, at a time like now, right, um, wasn't too long ago that I left Khan Academy, was that the, at, at least even in the States, 
um, we were looking at the public school system in the United States and the digital divide is is pretty real, um, right? I think in, in 2019, and what I mean by the digital divide is in 2019, and I believe that the statistics have, have changed quite a bit since then, um, about 30% of the country did not have internet access at home. And we saw that um, exacerbate during the pandemic, right? Uh, kids who couldn't go to school actually were not able to do schoolwork because they had no access uh, to that kind of infrastructure. Um, you know, different, depending on the, the school system, they would actually use bus drivers and buses to drive around different neighborhoods with Wi-Fi hotspots so that kids could get online for free. Um, and this was at some of the wealthier school districts. And so it really got me frustrated because we could make this amazing free online education platform. And for, for those who are not familiar, Khan Academy's mission is to provide a free world-class education to anyone, anywhere, primarily at the K through 12 level. Um, and it's, I, I would say it's making amazing strides at that. However, if the infrastructure isn't there to support that, um, you've got kind of a broad swath of the country and the world for that matter who, who can't access that information. And so it got me interested in working on problems much deeper than that. Um, but so ultimately, like, there's an order of operations uh, behind how you, how you actually disseminate some of that educational material. Can, can you dive deeper into, like, practicalities that you discovered and continue your story, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so with respect to the content itself, you know, one of the things that we worked on very deeply, if you think about, so to put, put those problems aside, assume that a kid has the ability to get online uh, and get access to education, right? One of the bigger questions, especially uh, on, on my end, I was, I was leading design for the learning experience. One of the bigger questions that we started wrestling with is, is how do we actually get kids intrinsically motivated in an educational experience? And by that matter, I mean, you know, so we can think about motivation on two fronts, really. We think about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And so extrinsic motivation is really, I'm doing the thing so I can get an A. I want to get the grade. I want to get the gold star. And Khan Academy has that. We, you know, they had certain gamification aspects. There are points that you get. You get, you know, certain celebratory messages after you complete an exercise, five out of five, etc. Um, so you're kind of get, trying to get that like reward at the end. And one of the bigger questions is that, that we had that we started to wrestle with is like, is there a way to actually transform someone who might come into the platform extrinsically motivated into an intrinsically motivated learner, right? I actually want to learn math because I enjoy math, because the process of learning math is, is enjoyable for me. Um, so it was a very challenging question um, to wrestle with, especially at a nonprofit that has limited resources to actually execute on some of those problems. Um, and the big takeaway was really the way you get 
kids intrinsically motivated, at least one of the ways you get kids intrinsically motivated is you tie, some, you have to connect the dots between why something like learning algebra is important to what matters to the kid, right? So if the kid wants to be an astronaut, you have to tell them why algebra is important on that trajectory to learning how to be an astronaut. And doing that in a way of, you know, creating personalized paths, saying, what do you actually want to do for a living, you know, and being able to select among them a number of options. So we were starting to explore and create prototypes around aspects like this. Um, and um, yeah, and I think we started to move the conversation forward. What do you do if the child says something like, I want to be a salesperson, uh, I don't know, where, where you don't need need like algebra I guess or like any profession that I'm not thinking of right now and they're not motivated by math how do you convert them yeah I mean I think the the, the tricky part is then to try and find avenues where it is important right so I don't know you think about I would say that some of the basic skills at a K through 12 level apply to all professions, all kind of, you know, career trajectories, if you will. A salesperson, you know, you could say, well, you're going to have to try to do things in Excel spreadsheets and figure out, you know, the number of calls or, you know, you tie in kind of certain problems that even even if they are automated by technology, right, or someone else is actually doing that job, you could actually show them why it's important, right? Show them how they could take an input from something like a challenging math problem and convert it into something that's useful for them and what they're interested in. Um, so that, that ultimately, I think, would be how, how you make that connection. Uh, but it becomes very challenging when you have a multiplicity of, of things that a kid is interested in um, and there are new jobs and, and new paths emerging all the time, right? And so managing the different avenues and trajectories that a child might go in um, is something that, you know, came, came to a front quite a bit. So, so when these problems arise, what do you usually do? Do you program something? Is it like a coaching session with the children that you do? What did you find was the most scalable way to change the extrinsic motivation to an intrinsic one? Yeah, so I can comment that and comment on that in a couple ways, and, and one of which I think hones in on the process, right? I'm um, when I was working at IBM Research, um, I had the good fortune of working with um, some 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 of the the notable practitioners and academics in the discipline of participatory design. And when you think about participatory design, ultimately, you know, I can try and give a very, um, try to sum up as best as I can participatory design. It's the idea of the, the people who are actually using the product or using the, the desired solution no better than the designers what they actually want or need, right? So they should be active members in the design process. They should be in, engaged as co-designers, right? And so you can actually think about participatory design on, on a gradient of sorts. There's the extreme version where it's just, okay, uh, users, people, 
you design this, you collectively will get you together, designer access facilitator, you collectively come up with the solution together. And this can work really well if um, you have a cohort of individuals who, who really have solid ideas of what they need, you know, maybe it's a specific discipline and a very skilled profession, right? Um, or there's the reality, which has often happened to me in industry, which is to say that the people are like, well, that's why we hired you, you know, please, you know, show us a, show us a solution. And then, so then it becomes kind of a back and forth, right? And so when we think about the context of education and you try to have co-design sessions or participatory design sessions with kids, they're often like, I don't know, you know, or they don't want to engage, you know? Um, and so then it becomes like just trying to have fun uh, exercises lined up that get them thinking about, you know, certain things that they might want to do, right? So, you know, we would come up with exercises like this or that, you know, when you think about a reward, would you rather have an A on your report card or a high five from your classmate, right? What means more to you, right? And so that starts to get into this idea of like, okay, are they interested in more of the social reward component or the the grade or, you know, is it a grade or um, a bag of candy, right, for example. Um, so we started creating exercises like that, and then it would start to open up more of this conversation and the dialogue, right. And then you could think through just different ways that that started to unfold with the goal of eventually getting into to, to some sketching, right. You know, we're talking about a software product here. Ultimately, like we want, you know, these kids are online on their computers playing games all the time. Like we want them to be involved in the brainstorming session, but they're not trained in the discipline of, of thinking that way, of thinking like a, you know, a product designer. And so ultimately it requires a little bit more work and, and guidance to get them at least thinking in that conversation. And then the same thing goes with their teachers, right? Uh, getting teachers involved in terms of like what matters to teachers, um, same sort of conversation ends up happening, but it's, it's just different angles, right? When, when you were at IBM Research, was it mostly research that, you, that was happening there or was it more practical uh, applications that you rolled out and, and actually saw results? It, so it was both, right? So IBM research is a, I would say, a really unique spot. And in general, corporate research, you know, you think about like the, the big names in corporate research throughout history, you know, Xerox PARC, for example, right? Some of these R&D labs. IBM research is, is, um, has maintained that legacy, right? It's, um, I think they're about, when I left, there were 2,000 researchers for a 400,000 person company. Um, so it's quite small. And the goal of the research arm was to, to really um, provide, uh, create impact in a variety of different ways. Um, and that, that changed throughout the years. Um, but in general, it was kind of an, I would say an 80-20 rule of 80% you wanna have impact to the business and 20% was kind of intellectual impact, and that could be patents, publications, et cetera. But the 80% was really research, applied research, right? We want to create prototypes, see results from those prototypes, and ultimately think through, could this be an entirely new business line for IBM? Could this be a new product? 
you know, and, and, you know, you could think about it in a variety of different angles, right? Am I creating an entirely new sector? Like IBM ended up having a blockchain sector, for example, that was spun out of research. Someone created a research prototype, pitched the idea, and then it evolved to be a whole business unit, right? Um, when I was there, I worked with a sociologist and, and we actually collaborated on a thought capital, right? We actually contributed patents, publications around the content, the topic of conversation, conversation design. This was pretty nascent at the time. Now you have chatbots all over the place, but we actually created a toolkit, a guide, published a couple books around conversational user experience design. And then we ended up creating prototypes, right? And many of those prototypes were used in partnership with uh, clients. Um, we worked with a couple, you know, major airlines, for example, to create an e-commerce experience of like a, almost like a travel guide experience. Um, and so we created some prototypes around that. So, so you're telling, sorry, you're telling me that the first chatbots that were rolled out within big airlines was through that research that you did? Uh, I don't know if it was really, there was, there were a lot of them that actually rolled out because of that with, with a couple airlines that I probably can't mention. Um, but there, you know, it was, it was around this time when I, I feel like the conversation was just starting 2016, you were seeing a lot of it evolve and, and we actually had a couple prototypes with, so, so you may have experienced a chatbot that was inspired by some of the research work that we were doing uh, because it was directly in the market. And so uh, grabbing it back to education as we're still kind of on, on that, um, and it, it's a very fascinating thing for me because almost everybody who has children or nieces, nephews, whatever, has seen it and experienced it during these times. Um, as we kind of enter entered these times in 2020 and now obviously it's like 2022 uh two years what have you seen that was done really really well in the education space um hybrid learning you mentioned at the beginning was something you looked into the user experience as well um and what are some things that you really didn't like and could have been better it's a hard question I think in general, there's so much room for exploration in the educational experience. Um, it's a it's a hot area in tech uh, and has been for a while because it is such a difficult problem space. It's extremely difficult. And I'm really not a fan of techno solutionism for it, right? I don't think there's going to be a one size fits all technology type solution for education. So I've seen bits and pieces. Um, I think there are some, some online learning examples depending on the user base that have worked really well. I think, for example, coding platforms. There are a number that actually are, are quite good because it makes sense with that medium. You're actually learning programming and you know, programming is I would make the argument that programs easier to do independently as opposed to collaboratively. But when you think about the K through 12 space, really, I mean, we, we would do a number of competitive analyses and I, I honestly was not very impressed by a lot of the, the products that schools were using and, and 
you know, in that I'm not trying to toot Khan Academy's horn because Khan Academy had has a lot of room to grow as well. Um, because ultimately, what technology should be doing in a pedagogy sense is bringing more, bringing, fostering, trying to foster greater human to human connection and human to human interaction as opposed to human to machine interaction. And so I think it's particularly challenging to do that, especially in the pandemic, right? Especially when you have the massive inequities that we're seeing with just even among the classroom, right? Some kids can't get online. You know, some, some kids actually can't turn on their video camera because it's, they just don't have the ability. It's not appropriate. It's not a possibility where they are, right? They're in a very small house with a number of other people, for example. They have to be on mute. There are certain things that come up that you have to think about the whole cultural context, right? Um, so that's, that's what makes it really challenging to answer this question. Um, I think in general, if, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and I would say everybody is on the same playing field, everybody has the same Wi-Fi connection, the same kind of space consideration, etc. you know, there, there've been talks about something like, a you know, the Dynabook, for example, or not the Dynabook, um, <laughs> the Diamond Age, um, from Neil Stevenson, um, you know, who's talking about one of the core aspects of this, this story is having this almost this like interactive encyclopedia children's book kind of one size fits all that this child interacts with. Something like that is, is, you know, in many ways, like the dream of an ed tech company is to get that kind of dialogue happening and that kind of relationship. Um, my fear is that the educational technology platforms that we'll see will will continue to alienate as opposed to bring us together, bring us closer together. And so I would be eager to see more solutions that consider how do you how do you bring social emotional learning into the equation, right? How do you think about kids interacting with other kids to not only learn about the core skills, but also Learn how to be a good person, a good human. You know, what is, you, you learn how to do that when you're in school in a classroom setting. Um, so these are really tricky things that makes the, the landscape of education and it's particularly online education so, so challenging, especially when you think about something as broad as the, you know, the elementary school kind of grade school level. I mean, you spend quite a lot of time researching this topic, of course, many other topics. Um, I feel like in this time, there are many teachers, both of people like me who are saying, where are all these bright minds that can solve these issues? And I feel like, uh, well, I feel like you're one of those bright minds. And so here I have you and I can ask you that question. If you would start, and again, you waved your magic wand, everybody has the same Wi-Fi. Um, if you would start an ed tech company, um, you said all the ed tech companies out there, they're not completely doing it right. Um, uh, there is like this magic solution of this diamond book or, or what, what you just mentioned. But what, realistically, with the technology that we have today, if you would start an ed tech company, how would it look like and, and what would it do differently 
than the companies that are out there currently. Yeah, I would, I mean, <laughs> such a, first off, thank you. Um, and also, this is such a hard question. Um, I often would, I would think about it on, my, on first, I would kind of break down the problem into what are the goals, right? What are the goals that we're trying to achieve, right? And so if we rewind, it, I would ask you what your goals are, right? Are, you, are your goals just to disseminate knowledge? Is it to, you know, and how do you think that is? Is it just, I want to get the information into the learner's head, right? Or is it, you know, when you're thinking about kids, is it, I want, to, I want them to learn social cues and how to interact and dialogue with each other. You know, there's, there's so much more context that makes it really challenging at the child level, right? So if, if I say, but I guess we can't, we can summarize that the goal is to replace schools or maybe not replace them, but kind of, um, spend less time in school <laughs> would be a better goal. Uh, some way where technology can actually replace this archaic thought of pretty much, uh, sorry to say it for me, of course, but school felt like prison to me. And it's not the first time that I've heard school felt like prison. And so I guess that's the goal. How do you replace school in a way that it doesn't feel like prison, yet the knowledge is there? The so Like, obviously, what happened during the pandemic is not a solution. People stay, kids staying at, at home, not having the social independence of friends, developing themselves socially. So that's not a solution. But I guess a good goal could be replacing schools, but not in a way that happened during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So let me reiterate my disclaimer and say that it massively depends. And there's so much more to the answer than just this. But I will try to answer in the sense that I would focus on, at least in the, in the way that you described your experience in school, I would focus on personalized education. You know, and by that, I mean, going in, I would, I would try to understand, like, what are you, like, as a kid, what were you excited about? What did you actually like doing? Right? So, I don't know, maybe it was playing video games or playing sports. Yeah, for instance. Right? Yeah. I would take those contexts and say, how do I actually apply those to the educational material that you have to learn? You know, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit about like this. There was a there was like a Walt Disney movie, um, like some. It was just a, an old one where you were actually learning geometry through playing like Daffy Duck playing pool, and it was just like I have to make this shot, so I need this angle and this angle and this angle. And I just remember I I was very different. I like I actually really enjoyed school. Um, but I remember being glued to that because it was so engaging to me. Like it was cartoons, it was Disney, and then I actually I liked playing pool or like watching pool. Sometimes it was on TV. Um, so it was it was a way of of taking something that I intrinsically enjoy and trying to translate it to something that is new, a new concept, etc. So waving a magic wand, here's like a high level solution or algorithm or idea along those lines. Have every kid come in, try to, try to understand more about them, build a profile about them, 
What do they like doing? What do they hate doing? And then personalize the things that they need to know that the school system says they need to know to all of those things that they're interested in. If a kid only wants to play basketball, how do you teach them everything they need, everything they need to know about basketball, right? They need to learn reading comprehension. Well, can you pick texts that talk about basketball? They need to learn out, you know, they need to learn physics. Well, how do you shoot a ball? Like what's the parabolic form that happens? You know, like how do you do that? And you do it for every kid, right? Because not every kid's in ba- interested in basketball. You know, you might have someone else who's, I don't know, interested in ice cream. All they, all they care about is ice cream, right? So that's, that to me is like the one of the one of the most inter- more interesting avenues, and again gets back to that motivation component, right? You weren't motivated to learn in school, right? But so how do you get someone motivated to learn in school? How do you take something that where right now the mechanism that we have, the incentive system is set up in a way where it's like get an A, gotta get an A, gotta get an A, so I can get into another school. So I can get a degree, so I can get a job. So you know, there's there are all these things, right? And and through that, we lose the love of learning because we're so focused on hitting those milestones, right? It happened to me, for example. You know, there were certain points in time. It happens to everybody. There are certain points in time in my educational process where I was just like, I'm actually really interested in this material, but I'm so stressed out about getting this mark on this grade that I have just lost my interest in learning it, right? So I'm just doing it because I need to, right? Um, And so removing those, I would say they're they're kind of artificial, the societal kind of measures that we have. So it's, it's a thorny problem because you can't just, you know, those things still matter in our society, yet they're, they run completely counter to in my opinion, the way that we actually should be learning, which is for for the love of it, right? So, kind of that that solution is the first time I actually heard that solution, and it seems like such a good solution as well. But you could, I guess, start with one of the easiest um, classes in school, which would be something like history, where you could create every month you'd go through a different level with your class or every week so you have like 50 levels i don't know how many weeks uh, school goes for uh and then every week you're dealing with the first world war the second world war the history of like america history of europe and and then through that you actually interact with characters learn about historical figures learn about the presidents of the u.s in america um so so that kind of game like an assassin's creed of prince of persia style would probably go crazy all over the world yeah i mean that that's definitely an outlet and an option and you know as you're talking you know there there may be those some of those disciplines or some of those topics where it becomes increasingly difficult to translate right you have to learn history you have to learn about certain wars certain acts that happen how does basketball fit in nah, you, sometimes it doesn't work right so but more often than not in every other subject in every other topic matter whenever you can you make the translation happen and then when you can't you think more broadly you know going back to what matters or what's interesting in in 
to the to the kid or the person we we all have varied interests there are many things that we like there are probably things that we like more than others right so it's it, you know kind of going down that decision tree of like okay you're not into basketball but you're into video games right or you're not into video games but you love watching tv it's like okay well okay how do we make learning history like watching tv or right or watching you know so so thinking through you know what is the prioritization of my interests and then ultimately like trying to go through and make that kind of algorithmic decision tree happen uh, in a very personalized way. Wow, this is definitely a topic you can explore for many hours, um, but I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned it. It is kind of so logical, yet the first time I heard it, and, and of course you'd want to put certain subjects, the personalization, I guess, is not yet with the technology of today possible or it would just not be profitable, I guess, as a company, um, but maybe in the future it would be, and maybe somebody's listening and thinking of how to create a game out of it. Um, but I wanna go back a little bit. Um, 20 years ago, um, I guess when we were studying, um, it was very much like get an A, get into a good university, you'll get a good job and a good salary. Nowadays, I feel like we have gone through the age of revering entrepreneurs. We've gone through the age of like crazy funding cycles. Um, blockchain now is going crazy. Uh, people are becoming millionaires with Bitcoin. And somehow, because technology is growing so fast, schools can't keep up. And so your A is now not associated anymore to a good salary. Do you, You've researched uh, in the last couple of years a lot of these things. Do you find that there's less interest in school, that there's more pressure on school because of all these changes or not? Yeah. Um, so I think I think still, I think we're seeing, you know, I think we're in a bubble, right? The two of us are in a bubble and our world, you know, we're seeing crypto millionaires, we're seeing tech exploding, you know, we're seeing certain things. I think for most of the population in the Western world, getting A's, getting higher level degrees still statistically leads to better jobs, right? But that, that range is narrow, right? Um, so I think you're still seeing the importance of an education, the importance of even a higher level education. Um, what I have seen, which is not unique, to my perspective, right, is we're seeing a massive reckoning of higher level education now. The undergraduate, graduate degree programs, especially in the fields that are changing so rapidly and don't have the kind of infrastructure in place to support that rapid change, right? In the sciences, for example, you can't be a doctor without an, an MD, right? You can't do certain disciplines without a higher level degree. You can't be a lawyer without a JD. You, you have to pass the bar. There are certain disciplines where it's like, okay, those are not changing anytime soon. But like, for example, in design school, in art school, you're seeing the emergence of like, you know, I'm, I'm actually talking to students who are like, should I go to get a graduate degree or should I just do a boot camp? right? Um, I could learn the same skills or do I even need to go to a boot camp? Could I just like try and apprentice with someone and get the portfolio, et cetera? And so, 
I think this has always been something in tech in particular. Um, and I, you know, I think you're starting to see him uh, there, you know, I actually am finally seeing or what I believe to be seeing is almost like a ripple effect into other disciplines and other domains, right? Schools are going bankrupt. Um, programs are shutting down. Um, enrollment is down because one, because of the pandemic and no one, you know, online learning, it doesn't stack up to the tuition fees. But two, you're, you're just seeing, you know, a reckoning of like, do I really, do I really want to get myself in debt? Do I really want to do these things? And so I think the institutions at place um are challenged right now uh, and it is really challenging disciplines as well as we're starting to see certain things get more lenient for example um, especially when you think about equity and inclusion and and the um, it's a privilege to be able to afford to go to get a higher level degree it's a privilege to even take out a loan to do that right and so you're seeing uh, changing requirements. I'll talk about IBM Research, for example. Right? That that's a that's a that's an organization that it's a subset of I, corporate research and IBM in particular required a terminal degree in order to a graduate or a terminal degree in order to be in a researcher. Right? Um, in my time you saw that alleviate to the point where, well, they still didn't let you be a certain type of researcher without a PhD or an MFA or some kind of terminal degree, but they did allow engineers to come in with just an undergraduate degree, for example. So a very old institution like that, they're starting to change the requirements, right? Um, and so I think you are seeing various things happen in the space. Um, you're seeing new ways of alternative economic structures that are coming about, especially when we think about what's happening in, dare I say it, the Web3 space. Um, and it, it really is having effects on how people are just making bigger decisions. Uh, um. How do you see, can you explain Web3 to people listening in and how do you see the future with Web3? The good thing that you caught, caught on with that. I mean, I am just getting into this space. Um, and so the, the way that I would describe it from the way I've learned is, is it's, you know, whereas Web2 was really kind of the centralized platforms, um, Web3 is moving in these more decentralized ways, uh, uh, decentralized, more autonomous ways. You're seeing it with, you know, new token economies, um, new coins that are coming out. Um, you're seeing with, with smart contracts and, you know, DAOs. Um, and you're basically seeing a very strong rise in a certain type of ethos. I would say this kind of, um, it's very anarcho-capitalist. It's almost like a very libertarian kind of, I'm going to, try and move things forward <laughs> in, that, in that respect, uh, especially with Ethereum and NFTs and non-fungible tokens and um, the underlying technology has allowed a lot of that to, to happen. Um, there's a certain aspect of Web3 that I've been particularly interested in, drawn to and, and exploring a little bit more of, which is more of the, the I would say, um, the emancipatory potentials 
of Web3, blockchain, of actually creating more socialist structures, right? More communal living, um, more sharing economies, you know? Um, so it's really... How? How? So you're seeing like DAOs, for example, distributed autonomous organizations. Um, you know, you can think about a cooperative structure where you have one worker, one vote. And if you look at a lot of cooperatives and worker cooperatives, and the main one of the main reasons they fail is because it gets too onerous to do that, right? If everybody's talking about a mundane decision and you have 50 people in a cooperative, I don't want to spend a few hours or nights trying to get a decision for something that is so mundane when we need consensus to happen. So if you have an automated way of making decisions that, you know, you have consenting individuals happening, um, you could scale that kind of platform more easily, right? You have the rise of certain currencies that are coming up that are actually trying to create stable coins, stable currencies, right? So. If you think about the US dollar, it's an inflationary currency. So $20 that I have today is worth a lot less 50 years from now. Whereas Bitcoin and different cryptocurrencies right now are, are deflationary. If I have 20 bit if I had 20 Bitcoin back in 2012, it's worth a heck of a lot more today right and so there are certain currencies is you know it's now allowing for currencies to happen where where people are exploring with stable currencies where my purchasing power actually just remains flat so you know what i have today is worth the same tomorrow which is actually very empowering when we think about um those who are not as fortunate right inflation is, is quite detrimental um and so I'm starting to explore different avenues like that, um, thinking through things like platform socialist models, aspects of that. Um, that's been something that's very nascent in the Web3 space and something that I'm really interested in, the, the, how they're dividing and how they're really splitting. And a lot of what we're hearing is the Ethereum, the NFT, um, this kind of idea, which which has merits, right? So if you think about blockchain, for example, you think about artists uh, producing work on the blockchain, one of the benefits of the blockchain is uh, the attribution, right? Proof of proof of work. Proof, um, so sorry, not proof of work, but uh, provenance. So right now the traditional art market happens in a way where if I make a painting and I sell that painting to you, that's the transaction but you sell that painting for a lot more value, as the artist, I get nothing back on that, right? So now there, there's, a, there's a form of attribution, which I think is a real benefit of, I can actually continue getting value out of the resale. So if we think about artists existing within capitalism, right, it's something that brings more agency to the artists. The other thing that it does within capitalism or you know within capitalism or another economic model is if i create a piece of digital art and then you're an artist and you take it and you remix it and then you create some other i get credit you know i'm credited you can see that it was inspired by this person right and so something that happens at artist circles that's 
uh, can be quite frustrating is someone's like, oh, you totally ripped my idea or my work. Um, and so now you have an audit trail of all of that thought and how it's been uh, iterated on over time, uh, which can be really empowering. Well, when you look at, you mentioned DAOs, I've been also exploring it in the last couple of months. Um, we actually had um, somebody who talked about uh, crypto on the last podcast. Uh, mostly DAOs currently are used for um, creating uh, video games, metaverse games, play-to-earn games, entertainment, I would summarize it. I've heard of DAOs uh, for TV shows, very creative. Um, but when you look at, obviously, your background, which is, you know, educa educating people, how do you see a decentralized economy combined with education? Does that work somehow? Do I maybe not see it? Or? Hmm, that's a good question. I haven't, um, I haven't thought too deeply about education with that. But, you know, you think about distributing decision-making power, you know, that's, that's really what I think about when I think about DAOs and, you know, you have impact DAOs, for example, that could be like philanthropic, right? So you think about the infrastructure that supports education and you can start to think a little bit more deeply about how certain things can play into a DAO in order to think about how, how different educational institutions are funded, right? Um, so especially when you think about things like more, you know, some of the things I've been interested in are like more equitable uh, voting structures, like quadratic voting, for example, where my voting power diminishes the, the more I, you know, the more power I have to vote, which often corresponds to the more money I have to vote. Uh, it diminishes over time if I say, I'm going to vote for all of this, but I can also have, um, you know, percentage of votes that are applied in different ways. Um, and so it can, it can make decision-making a little bit more, I think more interesting because you don't necessarily have the trade-offs that are off, that educational institutions are often faced. Well, if we put money here, we can't put money there. And here it's, you know, actually, well, could we come up with different percentage distributions that um, weren't possible before, for example? Can we start to pool? Yeah. So it would pretty much make the bureaucracy way more efficient, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I think yeah. You know, I think that's a <laughs> that's a good thing to work towards already. Um, we're kind of nearing the end already, but before we get there, I, I'd like to kind of ask you if there's something you'd like to mention, a topic that we haven't discussed um, that you want to still talk about, uh, what would it be? Yeah, um, I mean, I can talk briefly about some of the work that I've been doing since leaving Khan Academy. Um, I think that's um, something that is, is very nascent. I joined a, a new nonprofit initiative and foundation called One Project that's looking at the global transition to more equitable, ecological, and effective systems of economics and governance. And I think a lot of that is, in, is that move was inspired by, I think, what I mentioned to you early on, which is, you know, I was working on these educational problems and they 
some of them felt, felt meaningless if, if kids can't get online, right? Kids can't get access to this education. And, you know, if you think deeper about some of the ecological issues around the climate crisis that we're facing, equity issues uh, around the rising wealth gap that we're facing, uh, and just like effectiveness, like our inability to make decisions, you know, in the States, it's almost like a, we're almost at a stalemate with decision-making all the time that ends up happening. Um, I started to really, you know, question a lot of the, the, the platforms that are built on top of capitalism. And it had me thinking about just different forms of economic structures and, and economies and how how things have been tried differently before and, and how things are could be different, right? And so so that's something that I've been exploring in March and in, in this very new nonprofit startup, um, very small nonprofit startup, kind of very in an R and D space. Um, and so that maybe uh, starts to combine and intersect some of the themes that we're talking about we've been talking about because it does bridge things like education and you know, Web3, the potentials of Web3 for decentralization, right? Um, so that's one thing that, that I'd like to mention is just, um, you know, or explore perhaps um, is the infrastructure that supports even the conversation we're having today. How, how are you going to practically solve that issue, though? I think um, very good question. Uh, one that is currently being explored, which is even to say the process in which we do things. Right? It's it's deeply questioning that process. I think there are, there are interesting communities um, that have been doing things differently for for decades, hundreds of years, perhaps. You know, there there's a federation of cooperatives in the Basque Country in Spain called Mondragon. Uh, there the communities like the Zapatistas in Mexico who are living in, in these kinds of post-capitalist communal ways. And so starting to think through, are there, are there ways of being in the world? And so it starts with deep listening, right? And trying to understand what are people doing? What are people saying? Um, and really interrogating kind of the, the perils of the, this kind of hype state of hyper capitalism that we live in today, right? What's what's going wrong, and how do we start to get to root issues as opposed to symptoms, right? We see so many impact companies, nonprofit, for profit that are that are really looking at putting band aids over solutions, right? And I, there's no criticism on that. I think that's that's very much needed. Um, I think it just becomes a question of like, how, how can we start to interrogate that more deeply and how do we get to, to root causes? So starting right now in a very heavy research stage, and that involves both primary and secondary research in the form of talking to people, talking to communities who are, who are living in very different ways, um, reading a lot of the theory that's been put out and, and creating speculative design work, honestly, uh, trying to explore certain projects, even like the, the Cybersyn project in, in Chile that happened in the, in the 70s um, was looking at scaling socialism in a very digital way. It was kind of ahead of its time. 
um, to certain things like that? Or are there lessons learned from those types of experiments? And what was good about those experiments? What was not not as good? Um, you know, what's what's good about certain different types of structures that have been tried throughout history? Makes sense. Really like that. We're uh, kind of coming to the end. I'm. Uh, I think we're over time already. But um, I, I want to thank you for being here with us, sharing your knowledge. Um, and I want to kind of roll out the red carpet for you. Is there anything you'd like to promote, share? Where can people find you? Yeah. Um, well, first off, thank you for having me on. It's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm Rarar, R-A-R-A-R. It's a nice little palindrome there. Um, if you want to follow up my updates, um, uh, doing some writing that's coming out. Um, so there's a couple pieces that'll be out soon. Um, pub projects not public yet, but check social media for that. I've got a, a piece opening up in uh, at a show at the Moscow Museum of Applied Art next week. Um, so you'll see updates for those in my uh, social media handles. Um, and I would just encourage people to stay tuned on one project. Um, like I said, we've been pretty quiet, uh, but you'll probably be hearing some more updates from us uh, in the coming year. Nice. Uh, any last words for the listeners? Oh, no, I don't have any last words other than just I hope everybody is staying safe, sane and healthy and, and really just trying to live in ways that are true to themselves. Um, it's, it's a really difficult time to be human right now uh, in many ways. And so I just wish you all peace and um, just wishing everybody to impart kindness on everybody else and patience. I think that's a great way to close it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and maybe we'll see you in a future episode as well. Great. All right. Thanks so much. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.